Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. James has introduced us to the idea that trials will be a common part of our life. He has told us that trials are not uh, the cause of your temptations. Rather, trials are a, a possibility for temptations to come. But ultimately, the temptations come from within your hearts and my heart. And as a result, you and I must receive the implanted word, God's word, to transform us so that we can live by faith in a dynamic way on a day-to-day -day life and the difficulties and the trials and the temptations that we face on a day-by-day -day basis. From there, he's going to move, very practically speaking, into an area in our life that we face temptation. You and I easily show favoritism to one person or another. I remember growing up, I would uh, play with my sisters, and as I would play with my sisters, um, they would, you know, always one of them wanted to be the princess, and I was the prince, so I had to choose which one. And sometimes, I would give the appearance that I was not showing favoritism, but I was, because when I would choose, and I would use like Inky Dinky Donkey, if you, if you did it enough times, you knew which one it would end on because you knew that the rhythm went this way and would ultimately land on this sister. We demonstrate favoritism in multiple ways. And what he's saying is that favoritism has no part in the family of God. And so the big idea of the passage is this. Believers reject favoritism in all its forms. Believers reject favoritism in all its forms. If you would take your copy of God's Word and let's read James chapter 1, or James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one who wears the fine is wearing the fine clothes and say to him you sit here in a good place and say to the more poor man you stand there or sit here at my footstool have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts listen my beloved brother has god not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him but you have dishonored the poor man do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, we do thank you for your character. Your character is... <coughs> demonstrated to us as we humble ourselves before you and we confess 
our sin and you demonstrate your mercy and your grace in our life by saving us and restoring our broken relationship. We thank you that your mercy is demonstrated to us. We pray that we, in a like manner, would have a desire to demonstrate your mercy and your love to those that we come into contact with. That we would, we would forsake all forms of partiality and favoritism and that instead we would seek to demonstrate your mercy and your love to the people that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. In your name we pray. He begins in verse 1, and he's simply saying favoritism is incompatible with our faith. Verse 1, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Remember, growing up, this will date me in a number of ways. Um, I had a PS2, which that dates me. The other thing that dates me is... Back when I was growing up, when we wanted to watch something, we had to physically take a DVD and put it into a DVD player and push it shut. This was when I was older. Before that, we had a you know VHS and you had to be kind and rewind. You know, um, nowadays we have we have streaming services and we don't we don't worry about um, DVDs. I don't remember the last time I watched a physical movie on a DVD. It just doesn't happen anymore. So it dates me in a couple of ways. Anyways, I had a PS2. I was very, very proud of my PS2. I had saved up my money, and I bought a PS2. I bought it in South Carolina because I told my dad I wasn't willing to wait till we drove to Montana and not pay sales tax for my PS2 in Montana. So I paid sales tax even on this thing. Anyways, I love my PS2. I took it to Ghana, and it got stolen. And I was really bummed. And one day, this young man comes up to me, and he, he has a, a PS2 game, a soccer game. And he goes, my, my PS2 game won't work on my PS2. And I go, well, um, I was already a little suspicious that he was the thief. Okay? And so I'm like, well, let me see the game. So he gives me the game, and I go, well, where'd you get your PS2? And he goes, oh, well, my, my uncle... He gave it to me. I go, well, where's your uncle from? He goes, well, my uncle's from Europe. He lives in Europe. Okay. Let me see the game. And the game is a Region 3 game. Now, DVDs, gaming systems have regions. And so a Region 1 game from the United States will not play on a Region 3 system from Europe and vice versa. My system was a System 1. So when he told me this, I was like, you have an incompatible game and gaming system. You're lying to me. And I ultimately got my system back. But the point is, what? The gaming system was a region one, and he had an incompatible system three, or game region three, and they don't work together. And that's the same idea that James is communicating here. He says, do not hold on to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. The idea is they're completely incompatible. They don't work together. They're contrary in character. And so as he, he works through this in verse 1, he tells us to seek, uh, he, he seeks to lovingly instruct his friends to live out the truth in a dynamic way. He's giving the example of Jesus Christ. And he is the Lord of 
glory. And so he calls our attention to the exceeding glory of Jesus Christ. And so as you think about uh, the glory of Jesus Christ, we could think about that in multiple ways. And how is Jesus' glory portrayed? Well, one of the ways that Jesus' glory is portrayed is and how he comes down to our level. Right? Philippians chapter 2 talks about this, doesn't it? What does Jesus do? He humbled himself, taking the appearance of a man, and he came to the earth, and he lived among us, and he died for us. And as he does that, what does he do? I mean, he, he associates himself with the worst people in society. He associates with tax collectors like Zacchaeus. He associates himself with prostitutes. He associates himself with Samaritans. He's the Lord of glory, and he's demonstrating his glory by doing something that's completely unthinkable. It's almost like he's willing to set aside what we look at as glorious to do what he really views as glorious and so James writes to his former church members who are now spread all over and he says my beloved brother do not claim to hold on to Christ while holding on to partiality or favoritism in your life they're incompatible they don't work together God's character and the characteristics that are in us when we demonstrate partiality in this way don't work together. They can't share in the same space. And so as we, as we think about that, I think the question that James wants you and I to ask ourselves is, are our thoughts demonstrating partiality in one way or another? He's going to move on now, and he's going to give us an illustration of favoritism. If you look at verse 1, where he actually gives us the command, he doesn't say, my beloved brother, do not hold on to the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality towards the rich. It simply says, with partiality. The idea is, ban all favoritism, all partiality in every area of your life completely. Verses 2 and 4, 2 through 4, now are going to give us an illustration of what that may look like. This is simply a illustration. It's one. We can demonstrate partiality in many other areas of our life, many other ways in our life, but he's simply providing us one window into how this may demonstrate itself in your life or in my life. And the idea is that we may look at two people who come into a worship service, and we look at those two people and we choose to prefer one person over the other simply because of their financial position. Let's read verses 2 through 4. For, there should come, for if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and say to him, You sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, You stand there, or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Favoritism then may demonstrate itself in the pursuit of the wealthy or another fleshly preference. 
I know I, I mentioned this recently. I think it was a Wednesday night. But one of the things that I've noticed churches do is churches prefer people with families. That's a general statement, not every church. But as a, as a missionary's kid, as I talked to my wife who, whose dad was looking for a pastorate, uh, sometimes he'd go in to preach someplace and the, the people wouldn't know that he's coming with his family. And the people in the church would see a person walk in with four or five kids, and what do they do? The Sunday school classes are going to be full. And you can just see them flock to that family and like try to pamper that family. What are they doing? They're showing favoritism. As you read various church growth books, church, church revitalization books, it is so common that you will find the church books talking about find your target audience. Know who your target audience is. Your target audience should be, you know, single moms. Or your target audience should be people who are 25 to 35 with new families. Or your target audience should be, you know, people who are in their 70s, etc., etc. This is this is common, common if you start reading books about how to practice church. What is that? If I'm primarily gearing everything I do to reach single moms or to reach people who are from 25 to 35, am I not demonstrating partiality in how I organize my service? Is that in alignment with what God's word calls for? No. And so God's word is instructing us and giving us a simple example of one way that we could do this. We could do this in multiple different ways within a church context. We can do this multiple different ways as we deal with disciplining our children, as we respond to stressful situations. It's a lot easier to respond nicely to you know, somebody that we just know a little bit when we're upset with them. And when we know somebody really well, what do we do? We get really mean. Why are we doing that? It's because of how we want to preserve our appearance. We're treating one person different than we treat another person. And he's saying it doesn't demonstrate itself well. It's demonstrating itself. Why? Because we're pursuing something. Why are they, why are they pursuing this rich person in the church over the poor person? This is a theme that James has brought up earlier in James chapter 1. In James chapter 1, what does he say? In James chapter 1, I think it's verse 14 or chapter 1, <coughs> verse 15, he tells us that our thoughts lead to actions, which is called sin, and that sin leads to death. It's very interesting at the end of verse 4 as he's telling them this is one illustration of how you and I could show partiality. What does he say as he asks his final question. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's like he's tying it back in to the earlier passage. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires, his own thoughts, and enticed that when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth 
death. It says, ultimately, where does all this favoritism come from? It's because we're pursuing our own desires. It's because we're pursuing what we want over and above what God wants, over and above what God's design is. And every time we do that, it's evil thoughts. So favoritism then ultimately stems from our thoughts. And as our thoughts give birth to actions, it leads to favoritism demonstrating itself. And just like in chapter 1, he tells us the solution to our thoughts is what? Our thoughts bring forth sin, and sin when it is finished brings forth death. The solution is described in the following verses. God has brought us forth anew through the word to be a kind of his creatures, first fruits of his creatures. It's God's word as we, as we hear it and as we do it that leads to radical, dynamic transformation in our life. That leads to change, that leads to abandoning favoritism in all forms, in all areas of our life, and pursuing faithfulness and obedience to God's word. This is simply one illustration of a way that we could demonstrate favoritism. He moves on from there, and he's going to begin to establish some misunderstandings and seeking to correct those misunderstandings. Misunderstandings are easy, right? You could talk about lasagna bread. That's an illustration of a misunderstanding. Uh, husbands and wives have misunderstandings. My daughter and I, we have misunderstandings. We don't understand how a child who loved Baz so much four weeks ago cries the entire time now. We don't understand. But if you just mention Bath in her presence, she goes, all done, Bath, all done, Bath. And you're like, you love Baz. I don't understand there's some sort of misunderstanding that has crept into our relationship with our daughter, and now it prevents us from having peaceful bath time. And James realizes that the same thing is true in his church family that's now spread around. He references that idea in verse 4, doesn't he, when he says, having not become judges with evil thoughts. What are those evil thoughts? Those are misunderstandings that they have. So he begins now, as he works through the rest of the passage, to address various areas of their understanding and say, this is wrong in the way you understand this. This is how you should understand the situation. And so as he works through this, he begins by first telling us to understand God's thoughts. And this is in verses 5 through 7. In verse 5, he pretty much yells at us with the command. Right? We, we do this with young children, right? I, I forget what it was, but recently Anastasia was getting ready to do something. I'm like, don't do that! And she did that, and then there's a big mess. Like, that's why I said don't do that, because there's this mess. And that's the idea here, right? He pretty much yells at them in a, in a loving, kind way. right? He's calling them his beloved brother. But he pretty much yells at them, listen! So what are, we, what are we supposed to listen to? Verse 5, listen, my beloved brother, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Listen, apply these truths, loved ones. That's the idea that he's communicating. 
What exactly is he saying about God's thoughts? God's plan includes the poor. Don't treat them as riches. Some people look at this passage and they say, well, God has simply only chosen the poor. That's not what he's saying. Okay. The idea is, has not God chosen also from the poor? Because if, if the idea is indeed that God has only chosen the poor, then the instructions that come in chapter 2, verse 14 and following, where he talks about how we're supposed to respond to the poor, should be erased. Right? Because we wouldn't want to help the poor to not become poor because then they can't be saved. And that would be that'd be worse than solving the poverty problem. So that can't be what he's saying because it doesn't fit with the context that's coming next week. What he is saying, though, is that there is a constant theme throughout Scripture that the poor are made rich, not physically speaking, but they're made rich through the truth of who God is and what God has accomplished on their behalf. And he's simply saying God has a desire to work in their life, too. How dare you look at somebody that's poor and simply say, because you're poor, I'm going to allow you to simply sit there without being greeted, without being told hello, and I'm going to invest all my energy in this rich person who may be able to invest or increase the status of our church family before the government. And he's saying that's inconsistent. It's, it's incompatible. It doesn't work together. Don't treat them as retail. Understand God's thoughts. God has a desire to embrace all people, which includes the poor. So how dare you make the decision about who God is going to embrace and how God is going to choose not to embrace. That is the idea. And so he moves on from there, and as he moves on, what he does is he explains, my, my understanding of the passage is that these two people who are described in verses 2 and 4 are unbelievers. It's not believers who are being described coming into the assembly. These are two people who are off the street, visitors who have heard about the congregation, who have come to visit the congregation. And the greeter, possibly a leader of the church, somebody who has some sort of significant position in the church because they're able to tell somebody, hey, look, let's see right there. That's who it's one with the footrest and the, the captain armchairs, that's your seat of prominence. You look poor. Um, you see at the bottom where the coat racks are? You stink a little bit. Why don't you sit back there so we don't have to smell you? The idea is it could be actually the leader of the church who is demonstrating this kind of favoritism. And so there's these two people who have come in who are not believers, they're not part of the assembly. And saying, how dare you assume that this person will come to Christ and the other person won't. He goes on and he says, the danger is that you and I would be, so to speak, betrayed by this rich person. And so we're called to advance God's thoughts and God's plans because we, we are not guaranteed that the, the rich person that you promote would do anything for the church. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not 
rich oppress you and drag you into courts, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? And while the justice system in our nation overall, I think, is, is very good, you and I both know that those who have more money have better ability to hire good lawyers and get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. Okay? Now, that doesn't always happen, but I think the idea here is this rich person could decide that he's mad at you for something completely otherwise and abuse you individually or you corporately. And so why show favoritism for somebody like that? It's, it's inconsistent with God's character. It's inconsistent with just practical living. It doesn't make any sense. So understand God's thoughts. God has a desire to embrace all. How dare you show partiality to the rich? How dare you show partiality to one ethnicity over another? How dare you show partiality to one demographic of age versus another? That is the idea that he is communicating. So understand God's thoughts. God's thoughts are, I want to include all people. So correct that misunderstanding. So who do we think that God wants to bring into fellowship? And if our, if our thoughts about that are not in alignment with God's thoughts, that God has a desire to bring all people, he has a desire that all people would seek repentance, and that none should perish, and we demonstrate favoritism in another way, it's inconsistent. That misunderstanding must be corrected. We must understand God's thoughts, God's plan. And then we must seek to advance God's thoughts, God's he moves on from there and he says, understand the law. In verses 8 through 11, he's going to develop this idea. And as he does so, he says that there are many false conceptions of fulfilling God's law. This is, this is very common still. Many think that simply by following most of the commands or by following a majority of um, a command that they will earn God's favor. If I follow, you know, nine of the ten commandments, I'm good. Or if I follow the Ten Commandments, most of the time, at least 51% of the time, right, I'm okay with God. And as he writes them in verses 8 through 11, he tells them, that is completely wrong. Look at verse 8 through 11. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well, but if you show partiality, you commit sin or are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. His idea is you can't <coughs> do it part way. God's standard is set, it is absolute, it is 100% of the time, 100% obedient, with no variance. That's the standard of the law for everyone. Whether you're a first-time visitor here, or whether you've been here for, you know, 50 years. It doesn't matter. That is the standard God has established. That is the law. 
And I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to call you and I to honestly examine our own selves and say, have I ever shown favoritism in the slightest of ways? And most of us would have to say, yeah, in, in some way, at some point, I've demonstrated favoritism. Maybe it's by, you know, the inky dinky donkey, and I knew which sister would become the princess for our little play game that we were doing. Maybe it's something more serious, but the point is, we've all failed. None of us measure up to all the law, all the time. And because none of us measure up, and none of us are perfect, one act of sin brings God's just condemnation for you and for me. And if God's condemnation is just, and you and I are under his condemnation, because we can't fulfill the law perfectly, we have a problem. So he's writing to the church and he tells them, your understanding of the law is, it's not measuring up. And so how do you rectify this? How do you rectify this? The solution to their misunderstanding of the law is a better understanding of God's mercy. And so in verses 12 and 13, he addresses God's mercy. How have we seen God's mercy? You and I both know that we can't measure up to the law 100% of the time, all the time. So how do we rectify the fact that we are now sinners, that we are condemned before a holy, righteous God? It's because of who Jesus Christ is. God looked upon our fallen condition. He knew that there was no way that we could find favor with him. And so he sent his son into the world. He came. He left his glory. He humbled himself. He became a man. He went to the cross. He died for your sins and for my sins. So that if I place my faith in Jesus' finished work, my sins can be forgiven. That is mercy. And that is what James is going to address now. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Notice he's changed the law. Right? It's no longer the law that he's describing in verses 8 through verse 11. The law that was given by Moses. He says you're not judged by that law. Why? Why are you no longer judged by the law that was given under Moses, the patriarch of the faith? People still walk around saying, I am um, Father Abraham. Whether or not they should is a whole other question, but they do it. Why? Because everything somehow traces back to Abraham and the Jews, and it all flows down to us. We're not judged by that law. We're judged by the law of liberty. He goes on. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He has abandoned favoritism and act as those who no longer are under the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. He's calling upon us 
once again, he's returning to the very first command. Our, our speech and our actions should be in alignment with the faith. It must be compatible with the faith that we hold. So our actions, our speech, must be in alignment. It must be in alignment with the law of liberty. The believer in Jesus does not merit God's favor by keeping the law. And in fact, no one ever could. And so God demonstrated his mercy. He sent his son to die on your behalf and on my behalf. And if you want God's mercy, the idea is you should demonstrate the mercy that you receive. Because what happens to somebody who's guilty and the judge has no mercy upon that person? They get the maximum sentence, right? The jury comes back and says, on all accounts, we find the defendant guilty. And then you get to wait a few weeks and the judge looks at more evidence and more requests and, you know, speeches from the various people who are impacted. And if the judge has no mercy, what does he do? He takes his little gavel and he hits it and he tells them maximum sentence. And we all want mercy at that point. And the idea is God has demonstrated mercy to you by sending his son, Jesus Christ, so you don't have to pay the penalty you deserve. So demonstrate mercy to those who come into your gatherings. Demonstrate mercy to the people who are in your family. Demonstrate mercy to the people you work with. Demonstrate mercy to the people that you go to the grocery store with. Demonstrate mercy. Don't show favoritism. It is incompatible with the truth that you proclaim and profess. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Why? Because the natural consequences of judgment is maximum sentence. What prevents a judge from handing down the maximum sentence? Something he sees leads him to say, this situation deserves some mercy. Right? Otherwise, he's a horrible judge and we don't want him as a judge. There has to be mercy that he sees, some reason for mercy. That he demonstrates mercy. And what James is saying is, you have been demonstrated and given the greatest demonstration of mercy that ever was when Jesus Christ came and died for your sins. Your sins. Why would you demonstrate partiality? Why would you demonstrate favoritism when you've been demonstrated that much mercy? Can't you forbear? That's grievance. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James gives them a command. He tells them, don't show favoritism. It is incompatible with the faith. Here's an illustration. It's a illustration. Here are some things that you need to think through in your life. Do you understand God's thoughts? Do you understand the law? Do you understand God's mercy? And a proper understanding of who God is, God's character, and God's thoughts about the world, a proper understanding of God's law, and how you don't measure up, 
and a proper understanding of God's mercy and the fact that you are the greatest recipient of God's mercy will lead to a transformed life. A life that demonstrates no partiality and that is in conformity to and compatible with the faith that you and I profess. That is the idea that James is communicating in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Mercy has, was given when we deserved judgment. Our mercy is a reminder, then, of our ultimate hope. The hope that you and I do not have to bear the penalty of our sins. Because God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. And so, we go forward, encouraged by the fact that God has demonstrated and challenged to demonstrate no favoritism to those that we can encounter. So as we, as we think through some of these big ideas that I think James has developed, I think God hates favoritism. That is, it is inconsistent with his character. His character allows no favoritism. That is what Romans chapter 2, verse like 11 or something says. God shows no favoritism. It's incompatible with who he is. And we as God's children should demonstrate no favoritism. Why? Because we are Christians. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. People who have chosen to pattern our life after Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ shows no favoritism. So as people who have devoted our life to pursuit of Jesus' path, it's incompatible for us to demonstrate any favoritism. Favoritism, then, is a gross misunderstanding of God's characterism, character. And favoritism, then, fails to value the immense mercy of God. And so how do, we, how do we go forward from here? I think one of the things that James wants his church to do, I think one of the things that you and I ought to do is we ought to examine our life. In light of the truth that we've learned, that we can't hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. And say, God, examine my heart. Is there areas of my heart that is demonstrating partiality at church? Are there areas of my life that is demonstrating partiality at home? Are there areas of my life that's demonstrating partiality at my workplace? And if I'm demonstrating partiality in some area of my life, help me to see that and help me to have a humble heart that is willing to come before you and to confess that and to repent and to seek to live a life that is patterned after yours. One that is truly a, a lifestyle of a disciple. One who has completely given himself over to Jesus Christ and is pursuing his pattern, his model, his example. As we do that, then we must depend upon Christ to grow. Because you'll never be perfect and I'll never be perfect. The tendency to, for us to show partiality, to demonstrate favoritism, and the many areas that are available to us to demonstrate favoritism will never go away. I was scrolling through Facebook and one of my pastor's friends uh, posted something that was... Like, you know it's true, and you knew it was true, but it just made you think about it, like, in a really good way. And pretty much what he posted was, um, godliness isn't uh, 
depending less upon God, it's realizing that you need to depend on him more. And you, you think, uh, yeah, that's actually true, you know. And I knew that, but the way he stated it was just like, wow. Sometimes, you know, you look at your life and you see areas where you're still struggling and you realize you're ever-increasing dependence upon God and you're like, man, it's just like, the more I know, the more I realize I'm struggling and I'm not where I need to be. That realization of that dependence is a demonstration of your sanctification. It's a demonstration of your growth. And so it's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. It's my privilege. It's your privilege to depend upon Christ and to grow in this area and to not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Instead, we realize that we have received mercy and that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we freely bestow mercy and love on those that we come into contact with. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for his truthfulness. We pray that you would uh, use uh, this passage of scripture to uh, transform our hearts, to help us to see areas in our life where we are in need of uh, growth, of continual chiseling of you in our hearts and in our lives. We pray that as we see that, that we would um, depend on you and that we would grow and become more like you. We thank you for who you are and your work in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.